This is Salt and Spine. I want people to cook the unfamiliar. I've read a lot about this kind of cook the familiar and what brings us comfort. And I'm certainly not against that. But I think it's very important for us to be cooking the unfamiliar. I think when you just confine yourself to certain ingredients and certain flavors, it kind of dulls your palate and and, uh, confines your mind to all the different kind of flavors and cultures, the beautiful flavors and cultures that exist in this world. So cook the unfamiliar. Hi there, Brian Hogan-Stewart here, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Andy Barragani. Now, Andy is a California native. He grew up in the East Bay and was influenced by his early childhood shopping trips at the awe-inspiring produce paradise that is Monterey Market. And he was surrounded by a powerful culinary scene from a young age. He tells us that his interest in food started when he was very young. He grew up watching Martin Yan and Julia Child and experimenting with flavors from the moment he had the motor skills to do so. Now, when he was in high school at just 15, someone suggested that he learn a little about Chez Panisse, the infamous restaurant in Berkeley, California, not far from where he lived. So he went in and asked for work. He ended up spending all his extra time there, learning from chefs like Cal Paternal and Beth Wells. Now, Andy worked his way through other restaurants, including New York's Estella, before landing a role at Bon Appetit, where he quickly became a known star in their test kitchen videos. So Andy's talking with us today about how he initially struggled to find pride in his Iranian heritage, finally finding his voice as a recipe writer and chef, and how it now feels to find excitement, nourishment, and pride in his cooking. Andy's debut cookbook, the reason he's here to chat with us, is called The Cook You Want to Be, Everyday Recipes to Impress, and it's a beautiful compilation of recipes that aims to teach home cooks Andy's gentle, effortless style of California cooking, which is, of course, influenced by the flavors and herbs of Iranian food. Now, paid subscribers to the Salt and Spine Substack will also get the chance to hear Andy read an excerpt from his new book about learning to make and perfect his own recipe for Kuku Sabzi, along with some exclusive featured recipes from the book. And actually, today's episode is very special for another reason. If you can believe it, I almost can't. It is the first in-person interview for Salt and Spine that we've held in 899 days. Now, before the pandemic, we recorded every episode in person at our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, and we're thrilled to start welcoming authors back in studio once again. So let's head now to our studio at The Civic Kitchen, where Andy Baragani joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Yes, we're happy to have you. Our our first post-pandemic guest. I don't know. Can we say post-pandemic? I think, I think we could say, well, I don't know what the correct term I is. I don't know Eventually. If we're, we're almost there, if we're not there already. Uh, and, and welcome back to the Bay Area. Thank you, my hometown. Yes. Um, so we always like to start there with with our guests, you know, about your childhood, where you grew up, kind of learn about food uh, for you at an early age before we get to the book. So um, I know your parents immigrated here in the 70s. Yes. And did they come right to the Bay Area? They came right to the Bay Area, Bay Area 1977. Um, my dad came here for grad school. And he had every intention to go back to Iran, and this was before the Iranian Revolution. Uh-huh. But um, that happened, and and eventually they had a kind of community over here, and my sister was born, and they stayed put. 
Uh-huh. And then and then you came out. And then like I guess older, I came you came along. She's older, later. yes. Okay. I like to point out that she's older. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and then you came along and, and you're born growing up in the East Bay. And I, I know you were interested in food from a really young age, right? You had made up words for food yes. as a toddler. It's funny because, of course, I can't remember this, but my family always reminds me that I was... Um, they remind me that I was a very, very, very quiet kid. I didn't say anything until I was maybe three years old, to the okay. point that they took me to a like speech therapy. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I like to think that I was just observing everything. Um, sure. But I would make up words for food, certain dishes. And so I think one of them was hum-hum and gene. And hum-hum was, uh, meant just a general food okay. and, and gene these are not real words, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so okay. I don't know how they kind of figure this out. And Gene meant um, ice cream. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, and you you were interested, you know, in food with these made up words, but also from like a pretty, pretty intense perspective, right? Like I've read that you watched cooking shows as a kid. You were watching Jacques Pepin or or, Julie, or, who, or Martin Yan. Like who were you mm. watching and when did that interest sort of become... You know, I, I think all of us are obviously that the act of eating is something that we all do. And, and, and it brings us, I think for me, it, it brought, it brings us pleasure and, and, and nourishes us. But I think something happened that was very innate in me at a very, very, very young age that I was hypersensitive towards this. Uh-huh. And it was something that brought a great deal of pleasure, but it was a very kind of rudimentary, very simple feeling of just like, this tastes good when you're that young. Yeah. And then I think as I kind of got a little older, and when I say a little older, I mean like four, (laughs) five, (laughs) I think I became more just enamored by just watching people cook. And so I did watch a lot of Martin Yan, um, Jacques Pepin, Julia Child, Mm -hmm. um, those, I just would watch them for hours on PBS and I had a Fisher price kitchen and that was kind of my favorite toy. And I spent a lot of time doing that. And, but I think eventually did kind of expand into something where it was beyond just the kind of active eating. And it was more of the curiosity of what happens when you combine ingredients Mm -hmm. and the kind of magic that may result or should result. Um, and so I started kind of experimenting at a very young age, 10, 11, 12. And these experiments were nothing to really write about. I mean, maybe putting like cilantro in, in top ramen or, sure. or, uh, or making a kind of hot sauce of sorts to put on shrimp. It was, it was nothing, <laughs> nothing <Yeah>. that would, <laughs> should be, I should even really go in depth about. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I eventually wanted to kind of, it got me, this love of food and cooking brought me to kind of want to actually pursue it professionally. And yeah. that led me to kind of working in the kitchens. Yeah. I think a, a lot of folks have that experimental stage. I, when I was around that age, I used to make different flavor seasoning mixes for carrot chips and try mm-hmm. to like sell them at school recess. Well, like, you sound <laughs> a lot more fancy than I was. Oh no, it was not fancy at all. Um, but you know, we hear from a lot of people who have careers now in food and food media about that, early interest. But one thing that you write a lot about is grocery shopping. And you were lucky enough to live in a place where you could go with your mom to Monterey Market, which if people aren't familiar is an amazing grocery store um, in the East Bay. But we hear a lot about that interest in food. We don't 
often hear so much about that early interest of like grocery shopping and that approach to ingredients. What do you think that impact, what, the, what that impact was? Well, I think a big part of it is growing up in the Bay area. Yeah. I think lo- I've been very lucky as, um, as an individual, as, a, as a, my time in, in editorial, I've been able to travel around, uh, around the world and I have been to so many great restaurants and markets and the Bay area. I still find very, very unique and distinct. And, and just the produce here is there's very few places that can match it. And so mm-hmm. I think it was sensory overload as a kid for me and a kind of early edible education and Monterey market is just one of the many kind of markets, obviously sure. in the East Bay and around the Bay area. But I think just the idea of going to a market and there were samples and an array of citrus and a whole uh, aisle of mushrooms of yeah. all varieties and, and so many herbs. It just felt like, um, I, uh, I, I was, I was overly stimulated. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in this experimental phase as a 10 year old trying different things in the kitchen, a 10 ish year old. Have you, did you always sort of think that was your path? Cause I know you write a bit in the book mm-hmm. about like fashion being an interest, like some other things, but were you always sort of on this food trajectory? I think I knew that, um, I don't think I knew exactly what my career would end up at when I was a teenager, but uh-huh. I knew that I would, was going to go to college. I wasn't going to go to, I wasn't going to go to culinary school, Okay, but I knew that I loved food and I had to kind of just, I had to kind of work through this. And so mm-hmm. I think even when I was in college, I said, okay, I want to work in restaurants. And, and I thought eventually I would maybe, it would just continue to be a hobby or a deep love. I didn't think it would ever really pan out to be a career. That was certainly not my intention. Okay. Um, but I think eventually I realized just how much satisfaction and how much knowledge I've gained through. And I don't just mean about cooking, but I mean really just the human connection of working in restaurants and, mm-hmm. and then really being able to kind of find a space where I'm able to write about food and open that opened up so many doors. And it, I think there was a moment in my life where I felt I wanted to kind of run away and, and get away from the food space. Um, because I felt like everybody knew me as, as someone who loved food. And I think, I don't know if this is like the Sagittarius in me, but as soon <laughs> as I feel like I'm trapped or confined, I want to get away and I want to yeah. break that mold. But it, it makes complete sense that I did end up in, 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 in the world of, of food. I don't know how I would work in anything else. Was that early on, that desire to get away? Or when did that happen? Well, there was a few different things. I mean, the desire to get away from like the food space pro- happened m- maybe at age 20. Okay. I had been in New York for, for a few years and, um, was in college and I thought, all right, you know, I want to be able to like do a lot of different things. And I still am very much that I'm like, I want to do all the things. Uh-huh. And so I had a brief stint in fashion and I was working for a stylist and I was working for a few food, uh, excuse me, a fashion magazines. Okay. Um, and when I was in college, I thought like, oh, you know, maybe I'm really interested in anthropology. Maybe I could pursue that. Maybe I'll teach one day. I, I love that idea. Um, and <laughs> none of that ended up happening. Sure. Well, I mean, 
good for us, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> you might have been a great anthropologist, but you're, you're a great cook, <laughs> Thank you. and we're better for it. So you you said no culinary school. You wrote off culinary school. Is that because you thought it wasn't a profession for you, and it was just a, an interest and a hobby? Or and do you regret not going to culinary school? I I I, I understand why people go to culinary school. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there's a, a right or wrong reason. I think that's a very, um, to each their own in that sense. But mm-hmm. I will say that I was told by someone who's been on this podcast, uh, <laughs> uh that I don't need to go to culinary school. Sure. I don't know if I should say his name, but, uh, but I remember Cal Petronell saying, uh-huh. you don't need to go to culinary school. He said, work your way up in restaurants. And, um, I did just that. I took his advice and I think it, I think it was so important because I I got what he was saying. I really did worked at a, a few different types of restaurants or a lot of different restaurants and and worked my way up. And um, I read he was in debt from college, so I don't know right. if I could could um, receive even more debt. But um, no, I, I no regrets. Yeah, and and listeners probably know, but Cal was the chef for many, many years at Chez Panisse, yes. which is where you started working at like 15, 16, 16. 16. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and what was that experience like? Well, I mean, I heard about the restaurant through family members and they knew obviously that I loved food and they said, well, you know, a very famous restaurant um, is right by here. And I said, what i mean I, yeah. I couldn't really i think in my head i was like oh i thought like all the fancy restaurants were in the city in san francisco or new york or um um or, or in europe uh-huh. and when they mentioned shapenese and they said oh it's 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 actually been around since the 70s and the woman behind it alice waters um you should know of her like it, and i kind of did my research and I wiggled myself in, I shouldn't say wiggled myself. I just showed up one day and, and went over there, um, and had a meeting with, uh, the co-chef, the other co-chef, not Cal, but, uh, but Beth Wells. Uh-huh. And I told him like, I'm just, I'm in high school. Um, I can come Fridays and Saturdays and I'm happy to work here for free. Like, just let me do whatever I can. And, um, I think, I don't know what they were thinking, but they allowed me to do it. Yeah. And so whenever I had free time, I tried to, I tried to be there. Yeah. And it was the best decision. I think one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Yeah. Because it provided, um, it completely instilled this foundational knowledge of food and cooking. And I think so many of the good things in my life can trace back to that uh-huh. time at Shapenese. Yeah. It, it reminds me of another of our beloved guests, Samin Nosrat, who oh, also yes. had a similar approach to her, her career by getting into the kitchen at Chez Panisse, which, you know, they just marked 50 years. The restaurant yes. has been around for 50 years. And you write about the culture there being somewhat unlike other restaurants, maybe even more than somewhat unlike other restaurants, but being a very accepting kitchen, um, very progressive. Was there an interest in you that at that point that maybe you did want to work in a restaurant or? Yeah, I, I think, uh, it, I feel very grateful and, and, and just lucky to even, cause I was, I certainly didn't have that awareness at that age, uh-huh. but to have had that experience for that to have been my first restaurant experience, it would almost, I yeah. shouldn't say this, but almost ruined any other restaurant experience. Sure. Um, yeah. The kind of patience and gentleness and encouragement and openness. Uh-huh. Um, 
both in and out of the kitchen, just the whole kind of mantra of, of, of Chez Panisse. I, yeah. I tried to absorb every bit of knowledge I could um, while I was there and, and hold on to it. Yeah. You write about the first time you cooked for Alice. She was coming in to eat, right? And, and feeling terrified. Well, I shouldn't even say I, I cooked for, I shouldn't oh, okay. say I cooked for Alice, but I certainly was like working and, uh-huh. and Alice yeah. uh, was there. And I, um, I do write about this in the book and I was really debating back and forth if I should include it, but I thought, you know, this is this, I'm sure people could relate in some shape or form when they meet someone that they have been really enamored by and have so much respect for it. It clearly was a moment for me that I was so overwhelmed and I was very, very young and um, I think I just didn't know what to do. I had, I, I, I didn't think it would ever happen or to the point that I had to rush out of the restaurant cause I was so emotional and I, I, I broke down and I think it was being in the same space as someone who had made such a big difference, uh-huh. um, not just in my life, but in, in, is such a leader and, uh, a figure in that we all know and adore in, in the Bay Area and, and in this country. Yeah. When did the transition, you, so you leave, you know, you're in high school, of course, and working at Shea, and then you go to college, and I know you work in restaurants in New York for a bit, you work in Estella. When did you decide that food media was a path, and how did that, did, was Tasting Table the first place you ended up, or Savour? Savour, yeah. I, you know, I, I didn't really decide that on my own. I, oh, it, okay. I, I, I think it just kind of happened. It, that's the thing. It was a happy accident. I um, I did pursue working at Savour in the test kitchen. Uh-huh. Um, and I did a kind of three, four-month internship very early on when I was still in college. And that was my first kind of experience in food media uh, shopping for recipes, learning about how to kind of test recipes, going through that process. And I was there for, for yeah, for about four months. And then I came back uh, maybe less than a year later when they were working on a story on Iran. And I came on to help develop the recipes for that story. And that kind of really put maybe a little bit more I, I, some attention on me. They wrote a story about my mother and I because all those recipes came from really her and I was helping kind of translate it. And that kind of gave me a little bit more reasoning to pursue um, a career in food media. Um, and I was working at Estella actually a few years later when um, a former colleague of mine at Sever was there just doing a, was shooting, doing a shoot with the chef Ignacio Matos. And he was at Tasting Table. Okay. And then eventually he brought me on and he's like, you should work here. <laughs> and okay. It became like a thing where I was scouted and brought to tasting table. And then I spent some, a few years there and then Bon Appetit kind of brought me on. It was, I think with each of these things, it was accidental and I never thought it would go through. So that's yeah. why it was a happy accident. Yeah. That, that piece at Savour where you, I know you spent a lot of time talking to your mom and getting recipes from her and presenting some of these Persian recipes feels like from what I've read of your work, a really pivotal moment for you. Um, cause you also write about, you know, growing up being somewhat ashamed of that part of your identity and embarrassed by the cuckoo in your lunchbox mm-hmm. and throwing it away or even, you know, saying you're Italian or part mm-hmm. Italian and have this. Italian stallion t-shirt yes, as a yes. child, uh, which I love. 
was that a was that am I right that that was kind of a pivotal moment for you in embracing that part of your identity and uh, you use the term Iranianness, mm-hmm. your Iranianness? And- yeah, I, I, this. I mean, I, you're, the essay you're referring to it's an article. I, the yeah. article I wrote a while back. Um, yeah, for Bon Appetit. Um, and I think it was a, it was a pivotal moment for me. I think um, I grew up, granted, in a very progressive area in the bay area sure and but this was um i my teenage years was really just after 9 11 and mm-hmm. um it was a very hard time for me personally and um i think i definitely had a lot of shame around my iranianness um and i certainly just in- encountered some not <laughs> I didn't have some great experiences growing up uh, due to my um my ethnicity and so it it I understand why I kind of was putting that aside for so long. Yeah. And now I I certainly don't feel that way and if anything I I am very overt about it and um stand strongly. I think uh Sever that several article um, and those recipes that were included, it did give me a kind of confidence to kind of really lean into my the wonderful food that I grew up with and the culture that I grew up with. Yeah. And showcase it in a positive light, which historically has not been the case um, yeah. with the Iranian community. And were you cooking a lot of Persian food before that? Because professionally you were, you know, at Chez Panisse and Estella, you weren't was that kind of a, a pivotal moment for you in changing the type, the way that you were cooking and bringing some of that into it? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I certainly had no desire to learn how to cook Iranian food. That is, I was looking and working at spa- restaurants where that weren't Middle Eastern and uh, I had no desire to kind of learn Iranian food. That was the food I grew up with, I felt, and that was the food that I will, that my mom prepares and I love and I'll eat, but not that I want to be trained in. Yeah. But I think the Severe article forced me to do a lot more research. And I kind of, while I always loved that food, I think I fell in love in a deeper way. And I wanted to understand and have a deeper understanding of the ingredients and the techniques and the dishes and the different regions of Iran and the different foods that come from those regions. And so uh, that kind of led me to kind of do these Persian dinners, these monthly Persian dinners at my, my apartment that I don't know what I was thinking, uh, that were open to the public, but, uh-huh. uh, it kind of became a, a, a little bit of a hit. And so it really led me to cook a lot more Iranian food. And, and definitely those influences and ingredients have, have stuck into my cooking daily now. And you write in, in this cookbook that you might emphasis on might even be able to make Persian rice better than your mother now which <laughs> what what's your trick because I will say one time I got accolades from Nazdravian for my tadig that I made and I felt like on cloud nine because she said it was incredible but even that I feel like can't get close to like you or your mother like what what's the trick well I love Naz very much I do too. Um, she's wonderful I think uh well, you know, that was that there's a big emphasis on the might, like you said. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I think I know that there's certain kind of foolproof, I understand there's certain foolproof methods. And, um, I think a lot of my mother uses the nonstick pot. And while I really, I have a nonstick pot and I use it for, for my Persian rice, I don't think I use that pot for anything else. It's okay. just dedicated <laughs> to Persian rice. Um, but I also think I have a, 
uh, I understand maybe just I'm I may be more type A than my mother, so I understand like okay, you give it this much this amount of time, and、um, for cooking during like medium high heat, you turn it down. I know when to flip to let it rest. Like there's certain things I've just kind of I picked up on. I think my mom,、um, she still does a wonderful job. I mean, I just had her food the other day, and it was <laughs> it was perfect. So yes, yeah, <laughs> maybe we have to do a side by side comparison. Yeah. This essay you wrote for Bon Appetit maybe five six years ago now、um, touches on you know embracing your Iranian heritage but also your sexuality and the process of coming out and how that affected you as a cook. Can you talk about like how both of those identities and really coming to terms with those and embracing both of those shaped you as a, a, a recipe developer, a chef? I think you know these are we as individuals we have our. Own struggles throughout our lives, whether it's our sexuality, our ethnicity, our bodies, or、um, and I think on my end, I have I look at it as I have embraced both of these parts of me, and and there are moments less so now at this point in in my life, and I'm proud to say that、mm-hmm. where there's a little more tension, and I think with my queerness, I very much feel like I. I'm, I'm a very proud queer man,、um, and it is part of my daily life, and so is my Iranianness.、Mm-hmm. And I can see how also though there is still tension here and there with my Iranianness, whether that is certain cultural practices, and, and I'm I push against it. But、um, I think we as individuals, we just. It, I think I've understood that it's not something that for me to over try to overcome. But more that it's just something that is a part of my life, and there are good moments, there's are harder moments, and it's more of the kind of just being open and being willing to evolve and expand,、um, yeah, not with my identity and also with my my craft. Sure. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Andy Baragani. Don't go anywhere. Hey there, cookbook lover. Are you subscribed to Salt and Spine on Substack? If not, you should be. You'll find our full catalog of podcast episodes featuring more than a hundred in-depth interviews with top authors like Nigella Lawson, Jacques Pepin, Samin Nosrat, and Carla Hall. And for just five dollars or less per month, you'll also get access to hundreds of exclusive featured recipes from top cookbooks. You'll get early access to our quarterly cookbook club and author dinner parties, and so much more. At Salt and Spine, we bring cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. Join the Salt and Spine community. Today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content. Find out more at saltandspine.substack.com. And now back to our conversation with Andy Baragani, author of *The Cook You Want to Be*. Let's talk about the book for a minute.、Yes. <laughs> um, when did you decide a, a book was right for you? And and you know you obviously were at the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen. You're big on social media. Like you have all these platforms. Why did you decide a, you wanted to have a cookbook? Well, I mean, I think there is a theme in, in, throughout my life, and a feeling where I never feel ready to do anything, even though I want to do a lot of things, and that maybe can be attributed to maybe a level of imposter syndrome, or just I don't know, some level of humility, or just、uh, I don't, I am, or or it could be my 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 Iranianness, <laughs> something self doubt. Um, and and I have no shame in that. I'm, I'm I think I'm happy. I'm I'm happy. I'm wired that way.、Uh-huh. Um, I was 
approached to write a book a, a while back, maybe like right after I wrote that essay for Bon Appetit. Okay. And I, I said, no, no, it didn't feel right. Um, and I didn't feel ready, to be honest. And then eventually I thought, you know, I've been lucky to work as an editor um, for a while, and I've seen so many incredible cookbooks. And we really are in this, I should just say that, in this kind of cookbook renaissance mm -hmm. uh, for a while now. I mean, yeah. uh, my book aside, just there's been so many amazing cookbooks uh, these past five years. And I think what, when I wanted to write a book, when I, when I realized I wanted to write a book, I thought, okay, there's a few things I wanted to make sure. I thought, I want to approach it in a way that doesn't feel so authoritative, which is something that I have seen in some cookbooks, sure. and, and I understand. I want it to feel like there's a gentleness there, uh -huh. and I want to empower the home cook. And I wanted to write the recipes, because it's the first time really I'm writing. I've, I've developed hundreds of recipes uh, for many publications, but this is really the first time I'm able to write them in a way that is fully me. Yeah, And I wanted to write those recipes in a way where it feels like I'm right there with you. I'm right there in the kitchen. We are gra uh, gathering the ingredients and we are prepping them together and we are just letting and seeing how things go. And I'm making sure you, you don't worry about this and it's okay to do this. I think that was one goal when it came to writing the book. And I also wanted to aesthetically feel like it is a book that you can pick up five years from now and it would still feel relevant. Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many kind of, I've seen, especially working in magazines, trends with, you know, with photography and, and typeface and sure. um, styling. And I thought I really wanted to feel almost kind of timeless. And you can, this book can exist anytime, maybe five years ago or, 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 or five years later. And, um, and I, the last thing I should say is I wanted to make sure that with this book, people are learning not just to make great recipes at home that mm -hmm. are highly cookable and that are delicious and that are beautiful, but they're really going that one step further. Throughout my life, growing up around an American, working in restaurants around the country, in test kitchens and food media, traveling, I've kind of gathered these lessons. And I think my goal for this book was, or not I think, my goal for this book was to distill these lessons and really pass them on to the home reader, to the home cook and the reader, and have them apply these lessons to their kitchen and their life. Um, I want them to be inspired both in and out of the kitchen. So with these kind of recipes, yes, I want you to love them and incorporate them, and I hope they're part of your repertoire, but I also want you to learn about an ingredient or a technique or the cultural context of a dish and go that one step further. Yeah. Was there a tension between that desire to f have it feel timeless, very timeless, very approachable, and like how much of yourself to put into it? Like, this is how I cook. This is why I cook this way. This is why I do it this way. How did you sort of balance that? Well, I should, uh, this might not, <laughs> this probably <laughs> won't answer your question directly, but I'll say the title of this book, The yeah. Cook You Want to Be, uh -huh. is not the title that I, I sold the proposal. It, sure. I, there's one word um, that changed right before I kind of turned in the manuscript. Originally, it was The Cook I Want to Be. Huh. And it was deeply personal and it kind of traced, I felt traced my life. Yeah. And the thing is, 
this book still very much is deeply personal yeah. and it does trace a lot of things about my life. But I changed the I to you because I wanted to bring you, the reader, into kind of my world. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't so much just about me, but really about bringing those uh, lessons that I've learned um, um, and hopefully passing it to the reader. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Now I'm blanking on your question. <laughs> yeah, just how you balance that, which oh, I think that's an interesting yes. anecdote for how you. Yes, sort yeah, of work I think to it was it was that, very yeah. important for me to kind of bring them in, and I think I wanted to put uh, myself in 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 little and 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 big ways throughout a a lot of the props you'll see are my personal um, mm -hmm. collections of flatware and cutlery and glassware and linens. Um, and I felt like it was very important to kind of bring not just my voice in and my food, but also the kind of aesthetics. Yeah. Also. Yeah. I like when I talk to people like you who have acquired all these lessons and tips and tricks and really want to help home cooks become better cooks. Uh, because I like to ask what you think home cooks need the most. Like, what's the biggest mistake people make in the kitchen? Maybe mistake's a loaded term, but like, what's the thing that really is like... You walk into a home cook's kitchen, you're like, you need to do this and this, and everything will be better. I love that you said mistakes might be the wrong word, because I was so conscious <laughs> of never saying mistake ever in this yeah. book. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and there are, there. I do kind of, uh, I write about 10 specific lessons uh -huh. in the very beginning of the book. But uh, to answer your question, I think one, ver one thing that is, I'm going to name a few because it's very sure, hard. Sure, yeah, me. a couple is good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One is, I think we've all heard this, but I have to make, just reiterate, I want people to taste more. Uh -huh. And I don't mean just taste your food before you serve it. I mean, taste the raw ingredients that you're buying. See how sweet that car carrot is before you cook it. Does it even need to be cooked? Is it so sweet that it needs to be served raw? Mm -hmm. Or has it been kind of stored too long and it's had a harsh winter and the skin is actually quite bitter and you need to p uh, peel it and braise it and maybe some kind of a vinegar and agrodolce sauce of oh, sorts? Yeah. Um, and see what it's like to, let's say that you take an onion and you are cooking it or you eat it raw and see how spicy that bite is, or you soften it with a bit of oil or butter, some kind of fat, and you cook it until it's tender and blonde, uh, but it still has a little bit of a bite, or you go a little bit further and it's caramelized and it's starting to get really jammy and almost unctuous, or you take it to a point where it's almost lacy and crisp and charred and will add like a bit of kind of a smokiness whatever it touches so i think you have to taste you have to taste you have to taste and understand how those ingredients transform and morph you need to season these ingredients so you can actually taste these things sure um i think that is so important to have a deeper understanding of how ingredients um and how ingredients can change over time and um and will make you a better taster and a better cook yeah mm. Another important thing that feels very specific that I, I, I shouldn't say specific to me, but I, I very, I point out in the book is I want people to cook the unfamiliar. I feel like there's, I've read a lot about this kind of cook the familiar uh -huh. uh, and what brings us comfort. And I'm certainly not against that, but I think it's very important for us to be cooking the unfamiliar. I think that is something that I've always kind of, 
whether it was subtle or un- I was unconscious of it, now I'm <laughs> very conscious of that. I think people should be cooking in the unfamiliar. If it's within your yeah. budget, grab that, uh, that, um, whatever it might be at the market, uh, a certain brassica, a weird looking, uh, uh, ingredient, a cardoon or, uh-huh. Um, maybe change your grains and, and cook with frica instead of barley. Um, look, uh, try new, a uh, different lentil. See if you're always eating short grain rice, try long grain rice. Um, if, uh, you've never had, um, a white grapefruit, grab it, grab it. Use the zest, use the juice. Uh, I think it is so important. I think when you just confine yourself to certain ingredients and certain flavors, it kind of dulls your palate and, and, uh, it, and confines your mind to all the different kind of flavors and cultures, uh, the beautiful flavors and cultures that exist in this world. So cook the unfamiliar. That's great advice. I love that. Um, did anything surprise you when you were doing this book? Did you learn anything or like other than that a cookbook is really a lot of work? <laughs> it is a lot yeah. of work. And even though I think maybe I felt that I maybe had a better sense just coming from the magazine world sure. and working in magazines, I think a book is a completely different beast um, because it's so, well, there you have plenty of. I've had so many incredible people help me throughout this process. At the end, it's, 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 um, it is, it is your name right. on the title right. uh, or on the, on the cover. Um, I think what has been surprising, um, has just been, I think the creative process. I think I learned a lot about, uh, design in a way that I felt very comfortable with design and I've always had a love for that. I yeah. mean, graphic design. Yeah. Um, and, but it was a steep learning curve for me and having an understanding of just like what exactly, how I want the recipes to lay out, what, how the essay should lay out. Sure. And it's so important because it's obviously your, your showcase, it showcases the flow of the book. And, um, I, I, had maybe a, a very strong sense of my food and my flavors and, and my writing. And I knew the kind of photography I liked, but I think the design was, was something that I learned a lot, just the kind of dimensions of the book. And this yeah. might be so boring for some people, but <laughs> no, um, I, I found, I learned a lot or the paper quality uh-huh. and, and the finishes and, and, um, I tried to kind of make it so that, um, it feels distinct. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's really interesting. We're a show exclusively on cookbooks. So I think yeah. people find that, that stuff fascinating. Um, which prompts me, you know, you use this term cookbook renaissance that we've sort of been in. And I think that's really accurate. Um, are there authors or works that have been really influential to you either over the course of your life? I know you took an interest at a young age in cookbooks or as you were embarking on writing your first cookbook that you sort of specifically turned to as, as references or guides. Well, I'll name one book that, um, recently came out and okay. it would, I, 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 I have to, I, uh, Rima Seals, um, mm-hmm. book, um, I think it's, it was very hard for me not to also give love to another, um, Bay area. Yes. Um, chef. Um, and I just have the utmost respect and, and love for everything that she's done for the community. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to cookbooks, Oh, wow. I mean, it's, it is so many Bay Area cookbooks. That's the thing sure, that's, yeah. I feel embarrassed. No, I mean, I think of, yeah. um, I think of Nancy Oaks Boulevard cookbook. Uh-huh. I mean, that I remember that very, very well looking through that cookbook when I was 12 or 13 and, yeah. and thinking, oh, this is 
incredible and so different than me and my cooking style, but so technical and so thoughtful and of, and very, of a certain era. Sure. And obviously the Zuni cafe cookbook, um, the Zuni cookbook. Yeah. Um, was that, was the Nancy Oaks book your first cookbook? Do you remember? Mm, I don't know if it was my first cookbook. Cause I, I know Zuni was before that. So, um, but I remember it was a gift. Uh, okay. I was very, very happy. Um, but I'd say the Boulevard, Zuni Cafe, um, and I mean, my friend, my mentor, David Tannis's cookbook from yeah. A Platter of Figs to yeah. The Heart of an Artichoke. I mean, he, um, to me, he, the way he, the, the, he has this, all of these kind of authors, I should say, they have a gentleness in their writing. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think, um, I tried to maybe bring that in into my writing. I, I love Nigel Slater. Yeah, he's very much someone who I uh, admire a tremendous amount in in every single way. I I have I think every one of his cookbooks. I think there are. Um, I have become. I'm still just as emotional as I was maybe, but I think if I, if I were ever to meet, I'd be very, very overwhelmed. I think yeah. he's definitely probably had the, he is probably the person who has had the biggest influence in, on me without ever actually knowing him or meeting him. Sure. Yeah. Last question before we end with our little game. What do you think makes a great cookbook? Mm. Wow. That is a great question. Um, I think really thinking about what, uh, what, what makes a great cookbook. I think, think really thinking about what the needs are for the home cook. Mm-hmm. I'll just say this because it's all, it's clearly very hard for me to give simple answers. <laughs> no. Um, I'm going to give a little story. We might, might yeah. maybe not have time, but I'll say yeah. this. When I first joined Bon Appetit, I, um, had, Worked in editorial, but it was I, my restaurant experiences. Uh, I had many more years in restaurants than editorial. Sure. And I really tried to pull all the stops when it came to developing recipes. In that first year, I was developing recipes that had maybe a really long list of ingredients and too many steps in the method. And they were good dishes. They, were, they tasted great, but um, no one was making them. It was uh, very hard to get anybody to make it. And I was ready to quit. And I don't think I've actually ever said that before, but I was ready to quit after my first year. And I think because it just was, I was, I, I did not know what I was doing. I did not know who I was cooking for. And you uh, knew this by, you know, page views or something like it wasn't performing. Well, yeah, like but also not. just, it was just like, I was, I was understanding the feedback. I mean, it's why I think uh-huh. uh, it was such a great, place to work at uh, during that time it was because we would give so much feedback and sure. i think i was i could not wrap my head of just being able to develop a recipe and yeah i think when you work at a restaurant you have all these kind of equipment that you the home cooks would never have access to and you have prep cooks and there's line cooks and there's a whole team and an orchestra to kind of execute these dishes. And that isn't the case with the home cook. Yeah. You're usually cooking and doing the dishes unless you're lucky. Right. And so it was very hard for me. It was a a steep learning curve. And I did have this kind of conversation with myself and I'll never forget because it was on my birthday and I have this tradition that doesn't exist necessarily now because my partner doesn't allow me, but I spent my birthdays by myself and I would have this 
moment of, of check-in period. Uh-huh. And a part of that uh, was me saying like, what are you doing? Who are you cooking for? Because this is not for you. And this is not for the home cook either. And I think I did wake up a little bit. And so I think the way I approach recipe development afterwards is still the way I think about it now. My, the way I write recipes obviously is very different in this book than, in, 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 than when I worked at publications because mm-hmm. I have full control. But I still believe in that I want the home cook to learn and I want them to actually make the recipes. And I think I have this kind of more, this slight little rule for myself and that is people are willing to try new ingredients but it's very hard for them to try a bunch of new ingredients and a whole long step. I think yeah. you do kind of one or the other. So I tried to kind of practice that very much afterwards at BA and um, with this book. So you will either learn a new technique with the method. The, I should say the, the longest recipe in this book has the shortest list of ingredients, uh-huh. and that is uh, Persian rice. Uh-huh. I think it has maybe four ingredients. Yeah. Uh, but it has, but it's, it's two pages or two and a half pages. There's also variations and sidebars, I should say. Sure. But, um, there's a reason for that because I really wanted people to understand and have a deep understanding of the technique in making Persian rice and the importance and significance of that dish in, in, in our culture. Um, so that's a long-winded way of saying I think it's very important to think about the home cook and what yeah. they're willing and open to do and, um, and try to kind of, gradually kind of push them a little bit further and further. Yeah. No, I think that's a, a wonderful answer. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so we always end with little games. So I thought we'd play a round or two of, you know, I try to be creative, but the game we're calling the game today, How Do You Andy It? It's mm. not not my favorite name, but I like it. We'll go with it. Um, so we're going to, you've got four stacks of cards in front of you. Um, vegetables, which are vegetables, proteins, which are proteins, flavors, which are herbs and spices, and secret ingredients, which can be kind of, you know, wild cards. Um, So you can draw one from each stack. I did shuffle them, but feel free to draw anywhere. And that'll be kind of your your basket of of things that you have to work with. You can assume you have a a pantry, you know, to access and other things. And tell us how you might Andy it, how you might turn it into an Andy Baragani recipe. And the caveat I'll give you is you can't just put a bunch of lemon and a bunch of herbs, because I know that's that's your (laughs) trick, right? That's your go-to. So you can can do it a little bit, but but show us us how you might develop a recipe. Great. So the first end point of vegetable, and that is Broccoli. Okay. Broccoli. Okay. Second protein is ham. Okay. All right. That's a little tough. Um, mustard. Okay. That's easy. Uh huh. Secret ingredient: pumpkin. Wow. Okay. Oh, okay. Wow. This is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay. So we have pumpkin, broccoli, ham, and and mustard. Hold on. I have it. I have it. Okay. Um, this is so weird, <laughs> but I think I know what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm, you know, cause I want to be quick. I can't, I'm not going to spend all day workshop, you know, and sure. I don't want to, I don't want, uh, uh, all you listeners to go through that, uh, that, to that space <laughs> with me. <laughs> so I think what I would do is, so we have broccoli, ham, mustard, and pumpkin. So what I would do, I'm seeing very kind of fallish. Yeah. vibes here right so i'm thinking and i'm it's giving me kind of fall holiday in a way okay granted we're like about to be in summer so but i'm just i'm going i'm going i'm thinking ahead i'm thinking you know this is like a october november november maybe this is like a um 
a Thanksgiving side dish. Sure. So I would take uh, the roast. I would take the pumpkin and I would cut it into kind of big uh, um, oblique pieces, just like big, sharp edges, edges, irregular. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll take the broccoli and I would cut it into kind of long spears. And I would... uh, Roast them separately, high heat, oil, salt, um, uh, a little bit of, um, and then uh, I would make the kind of a glaze made with uh, the mustard, okay, uh, which is would be Dijon, a little bit of uh, honey, um, chili, mm-hmm. olive oil. So you have like a spicy, tangy, slightly sweet uh, glaze. Yeah. So that's the pumpkin and broccoli will get tossed with that, roasted separately because they. Um, but high heat, probably like four four fifty degrees. The broccoli will get nice and crisp, and the pumpkin will get caramelized, but almost be custardy. And the ham, I will. Uh, I'm gonna say that it's uh, very thinly sliced. I'm gonna chop that up, and I'm gonna crisp that up. So it's going to end up being like a a roasted pumpkin and broccoli. Um, side dish uh-huh. that's sweet and spicy and then you have the crunchy ham on top uh-huh. the other thing i was thinking which i think is too funky is to do like a pumpkin and broccoli like mm, casserole situation but i don't okay. even know if i like am allowed i don't even know if my hands will allow <laughs> me to make a casserole um, no i, li- I like nothing against the casserole but, yeah. but i think like doing a side dish and i think broccoli and pumpkin would be really great because it's like different textures yeah you have a soft kind of creamy texture and then like a crispy green crunchy thing and then the mustardy will give it some heat and i just added pantry ingredients right um honey chili yeah. oil uh i don't even use herbs or citrus I <laughs> you would, didn't no, i would bro. love to use some <laughs> yeah. lemon zest and yeah. juice and, of course a little bit yeah but um um let, let's do one more round let's see if oh, okay. you, if you get lucky this time um but i thought that was a great approach thank you all right so for the vegetable, it is beets, love, protein, yeah. it is tofu, okay, okay. Uh, cilantro, great. Uh, okay. And secret ingredient, Thai bird chilies. Oh, this is so oh, easy. Fun. This okay. is so easy. Okay. I got it. Huh. I am going to, is this like a recipe? It doesn't need to be a recipe that I would develop, or can it just be like a dish that I'm creating that no yeah. one else? Okay. Yeah. So I would do this. I am going to... Do I'm gonna roast the beets until they're just soft, remove the peel. Sure. Um, and then you could leave it as is, but I almost want to kind of crush them a little bit and then mm-hmm. uh, f- fry them in a pan or on the grill and get them kind of charred and smoky. Yeah. So you have that. And then I'm gonna take my tofu, which it just says tofu. So I'm gonna assume it's silken tofu. Okay. And uh-huh. I'm going to blend that uh, with a ton of lime, Juice and zest, uh, garlic and ginger, um, maybe uh, some, uh, can I, sesame oil? Sure. Okay, yeah. sesame oil. Um, and so then um, I will, oh, and, and the Thai bird chilies. So you okay. have the spicy, creamy, zingy sauce. Yeah. And then I'll drape that over the charred smoky beets. Uh-huh. And then I'll do a... Um, I'll do, uh, the cilantro will get like coarsely chopped, lots of stems, uh, sprinkle that, and maybe some more lime on top, or uh, lime wedges on the side. Delicious. That sounds so great. 
Well, we didn't stump you, but I, I think those. Oh, do those are, are people no? Are people get stumped oh, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, but that's not the goal. That's not the goal. It's just to get a look into your creative process. So that was so much fun. Thank, thank you, you so much for joining us, Andy. This thank was so you great. so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. There you'll find Andy reading an excerpt from his book, as well as some featured recipes. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on iTunes. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Wirth. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. In fact, this episode was. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.